Well, good morning, everyone. You have, that's a great camp. So thank you, all those who put into that. We had a few of our kids come down and join you all, and I think there's going to be more next year because uh, I heard great feedback. So it's good. And maybe we can help out a little more as well. So, yeah, I just, uh, it's so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. And Pastor Trent, I appreciate him. He's the one who invited me into the pastor's gathering that happens here in Clarion. I love his motivation and desire to bring the pastors together. And so it's just been a great, I was moving out of one, transitioning out of one pastor group that actually made clear out in Phillipsburg where I was born and raised and uh, I needed a new group. And uh, God sent Trent my way and we've become good friends. So that's awesome. So, well today, uh, you all been walking through the fruit of the spirit, amen? And that's what you've been looking at. And today we're looking at the last virtue that Paul says comes once we have faith in Christ and that we know him. Believers in Christ are given the Spirit of God. We sang about that as we walk in the Spirit. He produces in us fruit that has no law against it. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, it is a beautiful fruit. Now, I could be wrong here, but it's sort of been hinted already by Jacob and Matt that self-control might be, for many of us, the least favorite of all these fruits, right? Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, I love self-control. Um, no, not the case. Maybe that's why Paul mentions it last. Uh, we all have fruits that we love. I love watermelon. Any of you like watermelon? Yeah, but I'll just let you know, I don't like cantaloupe. I, I didn't even know that it was spelled, I spell it wrong all the time. My spell checker had to bring that back to me. I don't like the looks of it. I don't like the smell of it. And just so you know, when you mix it in with that fruit salad and it, so it has watermelon and then cantaloupe, I don't eat it. Because uh, I don't like, it just like permeates everything. And I don't think I'm alone. Have you ever heard of cantaloupe bubblegum? Cantaloupe lollipops? Cantaloupe snow cones? It's like, see, I don't think I'm alone here. So, uh, so maybe self-control is like what cantaloupe to you is what cantaloupe is to me. And, uh, but let's be honest. You know what? Self-control is probably not love because most of us are really bad at it. We just are. Now, you might say, hey, Bob, uh, speak for yourself. Well, then, if you're thinking that, you're probably part of the 8% of the population that keeps their New Year's resolution. And by the way, we're not looking up to you. You'd make us look bad, right? So that's just how it is. Um, when I was four or five, I learned a lesson on self-control, and I'd never forgotten it. My mom had gone to the grocery store, and she was in a hurry, and when she got home, she gave me this item wrapped in foil that was shaped like a Hershey chocolate candy bar, and she said very clear to me, this is not candy. Please take this and put it in the bathroom medicine cabinet for me. I went into the bathroom. I was four or five, and uh, yeah, you, you all, did you all do this too? Uh, I, I had to know what was in that wrapper, and so I opened it up, and it looked like chocolate. It smelled like chocolate. I could not control myself, and I ate the chocolate, and then I literally couldn't control myself because it was X-Lax, and uh, I don't even know if they sell that stuff anymore, but they shouldn't, and um, the scene is etched in my memory of my dad sticking his finger down my throat trying to get me to give up the chocolate, but it didn't work. It just had to run its course. Uh, Self-control at a very early age. Self-control impacts so many areas of our lives, even at young ages. When you think about this, for instance, let me give you a rundown of where self-control impacts us. How about your tongue? James 3, 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check. Self-control for the tongue. Self-control for the finances. 
that Amazon has that one-click button. How many of you know that? Yeah, that's great, and that's horrible, right? It's just, can you, can you say no to things that you want? How about food consumption? Say, Bob, don't go there. I saw chocolate chip cookies out there. Uh, can you say yes to a salad instead of yes to a double whopper with fries? Addictions, there are many in our culture today, and there are various factors that are involved with them, but somewhere along the way, self-control comes into play, whether it's alcoholism, drug addictions, pornography, Anger issues, self-control. Can you enjoy a God-given hobby without it becoming your God? Can you order your loves in appropriate ways? That takes self-control. Time management, do you have control of your time? Are you stretched beyond the margins of your life? Self-control. Can you resist the impulse to respond to something on social media? Can you disconnect from social media? Can you turn off all the noise in the world so that you can listen to God and spend some time with Him? All these factors impact us because self-control is a factor in that. Psalm 25, or Proverbs 25, 28 attested this. This is what it says in the NIV. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Drew Dick has a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You. I want to give a plug for it. It's a great book. It's on self-control. He's self-deprecating when he talks about it, so there's a lot of things that he says. It makes it really easy to read. But he talks about this test, and I call it the marshmallow test. And I remember seeing things about it on a documentary where what they basically did is they gave uh, these young kids a, a marshmallow, and they set them at a desk, and they say, for 15 minutes, if you don't eat that marshmallow, we'll come back in, we'll give you another one, something of that nature. And then they left and they filmed the kids. And some of the kids were like, they couldn't stare at the marshmallow. Someone would look at it. Some of the kids, as soon as the kid, they left the room, the kid grabbed the marshmallow and what did he do with it? Plopped in his mouth. What I didn't know and what Dick mentions is that those who resisted eating the marshmallow had a far better life outcome later on because they went back and studied the, the kids who had grown. And they said the kids who could resist the marshmallow had far better life outcomes. Now listen, Beneficial life outcomes isn't God's ultimate purpose for us with respect to self-control. But listen to this. He says, Dick says, that ultimately self-control isn't about you. It's about surrendering to God's purpose for you. And if you can't control yourself, how will you ever be able to love God with all you got? How will you ever be able to love your neighbor as yourself? All these factors, the soul and the spirit, the body, they all come into play in these things. Your gospel talk won't match your life walk, and people will quickly pounce on that as they do. It's one of the things that talk about Christians all the time. So what I hope to do today, looking at this idea of the fruit of the Spirit from, from Galatians 5, is address four questions concerning self-control. What is self-control's biblical perspective? What is it really from the Bible terms? What are we up against? What do we need to remember? And what are some practical considerations and conclusions that we can draw from it? Okay? And there'll be several points under all those questions. So the first one is this. What is self-control biblically speaking? Before I even mention it, this is one of the virtues that actually the Greeks liked. Christians and Greeks back in the day in the New Testament time often looked at like humility. The Greeks, no, that, that's, that's weakness. Self-control actually was something that the, the Greek people who weren't believers said it's important. Aristotle said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is the victory over self. And Plato believed it as well. But the, Paul, the word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is in kratia. It's a Greek word, and it means just 
what we talk about, power over oneself. And there are some other Greek words as well, some things in the Hebrew. And when you put them all together, you get a biblical composite of what it means to, to be self-controlled. And so here's what it is. Self-control control describes one who, because of God's spirit, is motivating them to become more like Jesus. They are gaining mastery over their appetites, passions, and desires, and they are thereby equipped to fulfill God's eternal purposes for their life. So this is something you can't do in your own. It has to do with God works within you, right? But it's something that then for you then must work together with him to bring about all that God would have you to do. You say no to self and you say yes to God, and you're able then to say yes to others in serving them and meeting their needs. And so that's the biblical perspective. So what are we up against, Bob? Well, three points that we are up against. First of all, we're up against the cultural distortions of freedom. We live in a culture that doesn't believe in self-control, amen? You know that, right? We, we, this culture is going the wrong direction. Jake Meter says that we continue to give easier access to dangerous things and put good things on the top shelf. We are slowly destroying our culture in the name of personal freedom. We live in an indulgent, unrestrained society, and many times when our desires speak, we listen, we listen. And we swim as Christians in these cultural waters. We do. We are influenced by this type of thinking. Ed Welch, when he was looking at Solomon's uh, words in Ecclesiastes 2, said, he must have been an American when it said, I denied myself nothing from my eyes. I des- everything I desired, I-, I took. I refused my heart no pleasure. We live in a society that favors the indulgent end of the spectrum. But let me ask you this question. When is a train most free? When it's on the tracks, right? When it's on the tracks. And so when Jesus says to us in John 8, 32, that you are most free when you know the truth and you conform to it. So we have this cultural problem. What we're up against is we live in a culture that doesn't believe in self-control and think that it's important. And if they do, it's usually for ungodly reasons, ungodly reasons. Secondly, you're up against it because of the flesh. You say, what's the flesh? In the New Testament, Paul uses this word flesh, and what it actually means is, it is what you naturally do and think without God. It's what you actually do and think without God. Do you remember when Jesus told his disciples in the garden that they are to pray, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Amen. Is weak. And so, we must remember that when we get saved... The flesh does not automatically just say, okay, I'm done, I give up. You know it, don't you? The flesh fights hard. There's parts of us that are just, there's remnants of the flesh that are within us that just point us in the wrong direction. I I grow garlic, I smoke it, I dehydrate it, and then I put it in a blender, and I make smoked garlic powder. And then I put it on our eggs uh, in the morning. And uh, one year we decided to make some applesauce and we have this recipe that you put it in the microwave and then you put it in a blender and you blend it and then you can can it and do whatever you wanted. And we made our first batch. We put it in the the microwave and the blender. My daughter-in-law tasted it and she said, something's off. And I'm like, what do you mean it's off? She says, well, it tastes like garlic. And I'm like, you're kidding me. (laughs) And sure enough, I took a taste of it that garlic had permeated that blender 
And I had washed it, put it in the dishwasher. It would not leave. We have a blender that's used only for garlic. The body, the flesh, there are parts within us that just continue to rise up within us that God has to flush out by his spirit. And that's what we're up against. And it's powerful. It is powerful. It is amazing how hard it is for us to admit sometimes that there's parts of us that still are not like Christ. Amen? Dallas Willard says this, we are a living organism born and bred in a world set against or without God. So much so that after conversion, the layer upon layer of life experience that is embedded in our bodies, like the garlic, doesn't directly or immediately follow the shift of our conscious will. It largely retains the tendencies into which it is so long lived. And so what we're up against is we're fighting against however long it is that you've had certain tendencies in the flesh and to replace them with the fruit of the Spirit as God gives you the power through His grace and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have the culture, your flesh, and thirdly, you need to know that your willpower is limited. John Ortberg, I believe, is the one who said, willpower is what desire eats for breakfast. Your willpower is limited. You only have so much. Consider just one day. You didn't sleep well the night before. You're struggling to find time with God in the morning. And your kids resist, you resist the urge to yell at your kids because they're goofing off or arguing with each other. Your coworker comes in with some delicious homemade cookies. And some guy is tailgating you on the way home from work. And right then and there, your willpower is depleted. Because your willpower that you use to resist all these things is the same willpower. It's not like I have a willpower for food and I have a willpower for my tongue. It's one thing. And as that continues to build up, you get depleted. And the devil knows this. Let me ask you this question. When did the devil tempt Jesus in the wilderness? You know what Matthew tells us? It was after the 40 days and 40 nights. And it was when Matthew says he was hungry. See, Satan knows when to go after us. And he knows when our willpower is depleted. Now, the beautiful thing to know is, is that Jesus passed that test, didn't he? That's beautiful. He passed the test. And because he passed the test, well, we have salvation in his name. He becomes our savior. He becomes our Lord. And he also becomes the best example of how to really live. And once you're saved, you're called to be like him, self-control and all, self-control and all. So how do we get there? What's the way forward? There are things that we need to remember, or I guess I should say things that we need to have ingrained into our heart. So five points. Number one, all my desires are not good for me, right? All my, I say that to my grandkids all the, time, all the time. Not everything you want is good for you, and they love me for it. Of course they do. Not everything you want is good for you. Proverbs 16 to 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. That's why David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and see if there's any anxious way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me. God, you search my heart. I got to know whether my desires are real from you, lined with the spirit, or contrary to the spirit and lined with the flesh. Writer David Brooks says that the acknowledgement of sin is actually what makes people pursue virtue. When you don't think your desires are bad, you're less likely to resist them and more prone to make excuses for them. So don't think that all your desires are good for you. Number two, 
we have what we call, what Ben Labette calls free won't, free won't. Ben Labette was a neuroscientist who ran some tests on people and their brain, and he gave his people an experiment, a button to push, and said, push that button when you decide to. At the same time, he hooked their brain up to uh, le electrodes so that he could test their, their brain waves. And what he noticed was that the brain waves actually happened before the thought to press the button. And so, in other words, it looked like the people didn't have free will. It almost looked like the brain was determining the desires and the impulses of the brain was running the show. But he went further. He said, you know what? After deciding to push the button, he told the participants, you can say no. In other words, you can veto the decision to push the button. You can change your mind. Here's what happened. There were brain waves before the decision to push the button, but there were no brain waves when they changed their mind. And what he was saying is, this is how he summarized it, we don't have free will, but we do have free won't. We do have free won't. You can say no. Now, you have limited willpower, but you can say no. Do you remember what God said to Cain in Genesis 4? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must roll over it. You must roll over it. My take of Scripture is that we are willing participants when we sin. We're not victims. We might get ensnared in something, and then it gets really hard and get addicted and enchained with something. But somewhere along the way, we made decisions, and we said yes with sin. And as someone says, when you crawl in bed with sin, you always get an ugly baby. That really resonated with me. It's like, ooh, yeah, that's what happens. So when I sin, it's largely because I didn't practice any kind of free won't. Now here's where it gets really good. For believers in Jesus Christ, we need to know that we have more than just say no. We have been set free because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Hallelujah. That's the power. That's the game changer. We get a power that's not our own. This is what, how Eugene Peter expresses Paul in Romans 6 when he talks about this. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer captive to sin's demands. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into a God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. That's what needs to be ingrained in us time and time again. That's the gospel. You preach it to yourself every day. You can get up to each, each day and say it's a new day and I don't have to sin today. Now, you might, you might, but there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but you don't have to. That, we need to look at this from a positive way instead of a negative sense. And once you know Christ is your Savior, number four, you get to walk in the Spirit. You get to. Not you have to, you get to. The fruit of the Spirit that you've been looking at in Galatians 5 is sandwiched by this term, walk in the Spirit. It's in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he talks about the works of the flesh, and then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And at the end of that, he says it again in verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Now, how many of you, when you walk, what are you doing? You're in motion, right? You're in motion. Paul used that term delivery. He didn't say, I'm resting in the Spirit or even trusting in the Spirit. Those have their places. But you must utilize the gift that you have been given. That's sanctification. That's sanctification. The Spirit empowers us as we walk with Him. That's the key. That's the key. So, and then fifthly, it'll be a fight. That's what we need you to know. We're in a fight, amen? We're in a fight. When you look at Paul's descriptions of the Christian life, especially when he's writing to Timothy, he says, number one, be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. Be strong in God's grace. But then he says, look, you must be a soldier who doesn't get entangled in the affairs of life. You must be a hardworking farmer, and you must be an athlete who competes according to the rules. Paul told the people of Corinth, look, I fight my body. I beat it lest I be disqualified. Paul continually reminded his readers not only that they were in a fight, but they were to fight together with others. That's what Zion's about, fighting together for God, and you do it together. And that's why I ask, you all have discipleship groups here, you have life groups. If you're not in one, get in one. Get in one. Uh, My people hear this all the time. They get tired of hearing it. I got a new audience. I can say it again. (laughs) Get in one. And you say, well, I've done that. It didn't quite work out. Find some people, it's just a handful, who can love you as you struggle through the Christian life, who are going to love you even when you're going through some rough times. Who you, you don't have to tell to the whole church. Just tell it to a few people that you can trust. You get in those groups and something, God does big things in small places. Now, this is all important. This is important. But it's the small groups that are just as vitally important for you in this fight together. All right? So here's, here's then what we say. What are some practical considerations then and conclusions that we can draw from these things? I want to reiterate it again. There are five things. Number one, you have everything you need in Jesus to say no to sin. You do not have to listen to sin any longer. There are times you might need to tell your flesh, quit whining. I'm tired of hearing you whining. I don't want to hear it anymore. As Dallas Ware used to say to donuts, what are you to me? (laughs) We get to get to the pastor's prayer, and sometimes those guys bring donuts, and I fail. (laughs) But there are times I'm like, nope, not going to eat it. Not going to eat it. You say, what does that have to do with, the, what does that have to do with spiritual in, spirituality? Well, it's all connected, folks, right? It's all connected. It's all connected. Peter says in 2 Peter that we begin to everything that pertains to life and godliness so that we might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he says, so you've been given everything you need, so here's what has to happen. You need to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, and here's the word, self-control. Same word as in Galatians 5. Same word. And so we have been given everything that we need. Number two, start with the small stuff. Practice saying no to things that have less control over you as you practice for tackling, and as practice for tackling more significant issues in your life. Start with something that you can say no to. And ask God to help you. Walk in the Spirit. And then begin to say, okay, I've conquered that. Don't try to take all your problems at once and try to solve them because you'll fail. And then you get disappointed and you'll lose hope. And you say, where's the Spirit at in this? The Spirit wants to help you. God wants to help you. But you need to start small. Jordan Peterson always talks to the young people. 
who want to change the world, right? You always want to change the world. And there's all this injustice out there. And he says, you know how you start? Go clean your room. Yeah, go clean your room, which to me is go clean my desk. <laughs> That's where you start. Start on something small. So start with the small stuff. Number three, you need a bigger yes to help you say no to lesser things. It's called the replacement principle. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4. Don't steal anymore, but give. If you continue to say no to things, but there's nothing to replace it with, you will have a hard time. It will overwhelm you. The Spirit says, here, speak the truth. Don't lie anymore. And what the bigger yes is so oftentimes is Jesus. It's a vision of his kingdom and saying, that is so precious to me. I'm going to sell everything I have and buy that field because of the precious treasure that's there. You spend time with God, and when you spend time with Him, He becomes more and more lovely. And the more beautiful He becomes, the more sin doesn't have its appeal anymore. That's the bigger yes. Number four, we have mentioned know your limits. And what I mean by that is you need to simplify your life. And this is the big one. This is a big one in our culture. You need to say no to some things that aren't necessary, even though they might be good. Let me say that again. You need to say no to some things that aren't bad, but they're not necessary. If your life is like anybody's life that I pastor at Grace Baptist, I know one thing. You are really, really busy, and you're really stressed out about it. Let's just be honest. For many of us, we're running our kids everywhere. We got obligations everywhere. People are calling us on our phones. And here's what happens. Holiness does not happen when you're hurried. It just doesn't. It doesn't mix. Uh, Holiness happens as you spend time with God, one bite at a time, the feasting on His Word. You can't swallow the whole Bible at once and think you're going to get it. It's just not how transformation happens. Dallas Willard was uh, talking with John Ortberg, and Ortberg asked him the question, how do I cultivate a relationship with God? And Dallas said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Living in constant stress will make you more prone to give in to your impulses, and that you'll say, what's going on? What's going on? It's because you've limited your, you're not giving the Spirit time to work in your life and to realign your desires and your heart and your mind because you're too busy and you're stressed out. Dr. Bradley Wright said, if I want to destroy your self-control, I will make sure that you only got three hours of sleep and that you had a fight with your wife. Then I know you're vulnerable. Simplify your life. And that's hard. That's so hard, I know. But ask God, God, I'm going to arrange all the things in my life, and that's going this year. I'm not doing that anymore because I need to spend more time with you because self-control is connected, is connected to spending time with God and with his people and getting our lines and our hearts realigned as we spend time with Him. Then lastly, every day is a new day. Every day is a new day. The cloud of past defeats often bleeds into our today, but here's the truth. God's mercies are new every morning. Amen? It's from Lamentations. So you failed last week. Today's a new day. Maybe today's the day, the start of a new day for you. It's going to change something. Maybe something's got a hold of you. And you're like, I just can't, I just can't kick that. Maybe today's the day when you say, God, it's a new day. 
The old past is away. Don't let Satan, don't let Satan get the best of you and say you're a failure, Bob. No, no, no. Today's the new day to start something new. His mercies are new every day. That's the grace of God. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. So as the worship team returns, they're going to be coming back up. I just want to close with two thoughts, two points, addressing two different kinds of people here. Perhaps you're here today, and you are without Christ. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know again, it's been made clear here today, God has made a way for you to be free. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. He's the Lord of this world, and he's coming again one day to make this world right and all his people right who are part of him. He invites you to come today, and I'm sure there are folks here who can help you do that. If you just ask them, I want to know Jesus, well, they'll get you directed to the right people and talk to you about that. It's a simple prayer of faith. It's not works. It's not self-control. That comes after. It's simple. I believe in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for my sins, and I receive him into my heart. Then secondly, perhaps there's those of us here today who are believers, and just ask you a question. Is the Spirit of God pinpointing one area of your life that you say, I need to work on that? And just start small and say, God, help me. Help me to buy the biblical principles that we've addressed here today so that I can be on this journey of greater Christ-likeness, to love you with all my heart, to love my neighbor, and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone around us. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're a great God. I pray your blessing upon the people here at Zion. Thank you so much for their journey as they've uh, been without Trent and Pam. And Lord, I pray as they return, Lord, that there will be a renewed freshness that comes back in of a new vision of where you want them to go in the years and months ahead. Ask that you would just watch over these people. We ask your blessing upon them today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.